Sam Clements and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by not one, but two guests, Elizabeth Sankey and Jeremy Wormsley, the duo behind one of my favourite bands, Summer Camp. Jeremy is also a solo musician and film composer. Jeremy's new project, A Year, an ongoing project for 2019, will see a new song released every month this year. January was a banger. And Elizabeth, you're an actor and now a film director. And at the time of recording, your debut feature, Romantic Comedy, has just had its world premiere at the Rotterdam Film Fest. And your film's runtime is 79 minutes long. Perfect <laughs> for the 90 minute or less film festival. Welcome both. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about my film. It'd be really awful. I was like, I want to submit my own film <laughs> to your How did we not think of that? That would have been a great press angle. <laughs> we have not had a filmmaker on this show and I don't know if we'll have one on anytime soon who's made a film which is also eligible for the film festival. So it's a podcast first. Keep it short and sweet. That's what, I, that's what I kept saying when I was making it. Well, I would say to anyone anyone who's thinking of coming on the show that you are welcome to submit romantic comedy, yeah. Elizabeth's film, as as your entry. We would be fine with that. You don't yeah. need to get our permission or anything. You know, well, you can I'd just, want you permission. Can... I'd want, I, I want written. I want to give my written consent. From that bit of blurb at the top, you guys are you're, you're quite busy. Do you get time to watch movies in between your various projects? Yes, I watch so much. I watch so much because I always watch things while I'm cooking and in general I just I've always just managed to find time also well, I don't really go out that much so I <laughs> we tend to stay in and watch things and we go to the cinema all the time we're both a bit film obsessed I think and when it comes to deciding what you watch does runtime ever come into it completely like so often if we're planning thinking about watching something I'll just pop on Wikipedia and have a look at how long it is and if something is Know, two and a half hours long it, it makes you it makes you question your choices mm. and especially like at a film festival or something where you're you've got like a limited amount of time you're definitely going to be more likely to go and watch something that is shorter but also we plan our days out around films and sometimes go and see two films a day and so it's like well no if we do this then we can't get lunch in between and then i mean i guess in principle i'd rather watch one long film good long film than two bad short films but it is close that was a joke but it obviously didn't land <laughs> just so anyone was listening and i think i'm awful uh, that was a joke i, I was just thinking yeah no that, that's fair yeah i completely agree it's like film tetris i think it's quite good to sort mm. of you know see what fits together uh, when you have those filmy days when it came to us asking you to guest curate the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, how did you approach choosing a film, especially as it's two of you choosing one movie? I'm really embarrassed to say I think we just looked at like what films were under an hour and a half and then picked out, I picked one because I was really going to come on on my own and then Jeremy decided to yeah. tag along. And, and for reasons that will become clear later, I could not believe that our film choice was under 90 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But also Spinal Tap is a very, very special film oh. for me. I watched it on the morning of our wedding. Um, when I was, as I woke up at five o'clock, just like, oh God, uh, today's the day. I have to, I have to go through with it. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. Just just be distracting really. yourself from your own yeah. I wish um, I could have watched Spinal Tap in the morning of our wedding. <laughs> and, but no, not really. I, and I just, I've always really, really loved this film and 
I think the first time I watched it, I didn't realize that it was a mockumentary. I thought that it was a real band because especially watching it as a sort of teenager, it's a period piece. And so it didn't seem that unworldly to me that maybe this was a real band and this was their real experiences up until one point when I was like, oh, no, wait, maybe this isn't real. So there we have it. Uh, This is Spinal Tap is your choice for this festival. The funniest film ever made, the BBC. This is Spinal Tap is Rob Reiner's Stand By Me When Harry Met Sally's directorial debut that is often named as one of the funniest films ever made. A fly on the wall look at the comeback tour of the world's loudest heavy metal band. The original mockumentary celebrates 25 years with This Is Spinal Tap Up To 11 edition. And it is the Up To 11 edition. Can you tell, Jeremy pointed out the (laughs) other day when we were watching this, that the BBC iPlayer goes up to 11. Yeah, the volume on the iPlayer goes up to 11, which I guess is their little tribute. I mean, I find that a bit... Irritating. It's a small sort of American, feedback. at a time, like small American indie directorial debut from a Reiner, but it has sort of like seeped into pop culture so, to the yeah. point where they built the iPlayer volume controls around yeah. this movie. Um, yeah. a, lot, a lot of actual guitar amplifiers now go up to 11 or even up to 12 to be like, you know, even one further than that. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's, it must be amazing for those guys knowing that what they've done is. But I also love how much it's been embraced by especially musicians when it's like no guys this is people laughing at you like there are people I know who love this film and I'm like but you are like one of these characters and they don't see it and that's what's so brilliant about it is such a like successful skewering of a particular very like real type of music person I yeah. love it so much I think it's the same thing you know people in politics love Thick of It or Veep you know any anything that takes a real close look at what you um, what you do and and celebrates it as well as poking fun at it is always going to be amazing. But we've had, as a band, some of the experiences so that many. they have, like yeah. getting lost backstage. Always happens. Yeah, numerous occasions. Especially like at big arenas and stuff. I've definitely got lost at Brixton Academy. Yeah. And you do have that thing of you're amped up and like you're going to go on stage so you want to keep that energy, but then you're like, but where is it? And getting annoyed with the rider. I have like had tantrums over a rider backstage. <laughs> it wasn't a tantrum. Um, was it was a... <laughs> one of my most embarrassing moments as a human being. I thought that somebody had eaten an Easter egg of mine and I like lashed out at these two people in the room who I thought were the support band who'd eaten my Easter egg. And then it turned out they were two fans who'd brought me like a homemade mix CD. And I was like, well, I know that like I tried to kind of bring it back and like backtrack. I was like, yeah, I know it wasn't you guys. I'm just saying it's like really difficult as a musician when you haven't got your Easter egg. It was honestly one of the worst <laughs> things that I've ever done. I mean, I feel like you could tell that story in context where it would make you sound less awful, but when you put it like that, it does sound, no, pretty, it was it does sound pretty bad. awful. It was terrible. Oh, I'm really starting to rethink my life choices today. <laughs> so, just so much of it rings rings true, really. Uh, Elizabeth, you said you were a fan of this film sort of before choosing it and, and watched it on, on your wedding day. Is, is that because you are musicians and it sort of is, it speaks to you? No, I think I loved it before I ever, I mean, I it's very sweet that you call me a musician because I really don't feel like one, but I definitely watched it before I got into music and loved it, which I think is the other other amazing thing about it. It's not kind of, there are things about it that are real for musicians, but it's not sort of in-jokey um, or you need to know about this. It's it's so inclusive. I just loved it because, I don't know, It's it's there's so many amazing subtle things in it. I was, when we were watching it the other day, I 
this won't work because it's a visual joke. But Rob Reiner, when he's introducing himself, he does this thing where he half folds his arms and then like puts them down again out of awkwardness. And there's just so many lovely little touches like that and like the cold saw and these little elements that they just are sort of weaving into it and it just makes it feel so layered and textured and real. Mm. It's such an incredible world that you enter into in this film. It's surprising as well because the, so just for the background to this, the, these characters were created in the late 70s and, and they sort of created it for a skit and that was in like 78 and this film is 82. So I think they just, they stuck with these characters. Right. They've lived with them for four years by the point they come to doing the film. And then the, this whole film is, is improvised, which is why the director and the writers will have sort of, and the actors have the writing credits. Mm. I think improvised comedy can be, can sound really fun and then it can be a bit of a double-edged sword if it's a bit too in-jokey. But what works with this film, as you say, is it feel, they feel real. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think it's partly because the music industry has this, terrible slash incredible thing of musicians are always trying to sell this image of like their aspirational lives and the glamour especially in this period like the golden age the legendary period when actually the reality of being a musician is that you're always you're mainly like asleep you're working for one hour a day and the rest of the time you're just exhausted and like staring your bandmates in the eyes in a van and then you you kind of you get off stage and you're amped up and you're like that's when you would have fun but you've got to like at our level like pack down load up the van drive to the travel lodge drive to the travel lodge and then you've got a, a lobby call at eight and like nine in the morning so you're so there's it's, there's very little glamour and but I think and I think at this period they did try there was more of that but I think even then it was a bit fake I remember like there's this photo of Led Zeppelin and it's I was I was I went to look at this photo because there was an article that was talking about how like they were so rock and roll at one of their album launch parties they had a live sex show and I was like oh my god there was a photo of it and then the photo is just like Robert Plant in like these kind of really sad looking flares in this quite ugly kind of crappy looking hotel room and then there's just like a couple having sex on the bed and it's like the and he's just standing there with a beard with a beard just looking like what is my life and there's just no glamour and so I even those even those stories are like TVs out the window I'm like I guarantee that they were actually all just like really exhausted and not really having that much fun but you have to keep up this pretense of like oh it's the most wonderful career in the world what was the thing oh what's that band it's got a CD player Feeder. Feeder. Apparently, when they play shows these days, uh, apparently, before they go on stage, their tour manager peps them all up by, like, saying to them, got the best job in the world, and, like, kind of repeating that over and over like a mm. mantra. Is that actually the thing? Yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. Which I actually think, I wish our tour manager would. I wish we had a tour manager. <laughs> but that's what's so great about it, is that, yeah, it's this world that's supposed to have the appearance of kind of craziness when actually you're like oh my god I'm losing my voice I'm really exhausted I just want to sleep and where's my easter egg <laughs> you saw did you see it in the film though there is the sort of the manager character and he's all like alright guys really so exciting good. really exciting mm. and they're just like oh, where's my sandwiches mm. and what's going on with the record and, and mm. he's dealing with all that stuff keeping a lot of information from them oh that uh, and that times. like I've definitely we've definitely had that that's definitely a thing that happens of oh, like yeah, yeah. um, a bit of news um, this is this isn't happening anymore or this has been cancelled or and you're kind of like hang on no this isn't this is really bad news why are we only finding out about this now and why are you telling us in this way that's like 
oh no, but don't worry, because it's a good thing. And that's definitely something, especially now that the industry is in in a decline. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I released, back before we did the band, I was a solo artist. And when I released my first ever single, I, I called up the label to see how it was doing. And the, the, the A&R guy was like, oh, well, great news, great news. You've outsold, you outsold Paul Simon's new single this week. So, you know, fantastic. Well done. I'm really pleased. So, so, okay, so how many copies have I, has it actually sold? And there was a lot of umming and eyeing. And, you know, finally he was like, well, yeah, okay, it's sold, you know threepence and hate money to a you know two Jeremy's men and a dog. for a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was but that that thing of like trying to pretend to the art to, to the artist that's that stuff is fine when it's not. That I mean, that's that really rings true. I mean, I'm yeah. sure it's not just in in the music industry. I'm sure. And also, the other thing that's really real is Janine. Like when Jan- <laughs> I love Janine so much, and I can't believe that actress never kind of did much after that because I think she's, she's brilliant. She's so brilliant. But that thing of like how devastated Nigel is when he finds out Janine is coming <laughs> and like because I know a lot of bands have like no partners allowed backstage they're not you know they only they can't come on tour like it's a big no-no to have like I mean obviously we broke this rule by being a married couple on tour but it's a big no-no to have your romantic partner on like in the world with you because it does really create divisions and especially because they're like well you know he should really be singing lead on this or he wrote this really great part and yeah, that again is just, it's so realistic and so honest. In 1966, I went down to Greenwich Village, New York City, to a rock club called the Electric Banana. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. But that night, I heard a band that for me redefined the word rock and roll. I remember being knocked out by their, their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. The device of having Spinal Tap do their first American tour in six years and show them in all of these different situations, like the party, the various successful live dates, not so successful live dates, hotels, travel, and then yeah, when partners start to come in and people from the record label start to come in, it's such a smart idea for this type of comedy. Yeah. I also can't believe, I mean, I know that they're obviously, I think they're all very talented musicians, but I can't believe that like they've never been, to my knowledge, like in a touring band because there's so much of it that is just, how do you know, how could you know that without Mm. actually having experienced it? It must have been meticulously researched. Yeah. I mean, it helps that the music is absolutely brilliant, you know. I love the joke of uh, a song about bottoms and they're all playing bass. I mean, that just... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> it was, um, I think, in the late seventies we started to get lots of like rockumentaries. Mm. Um, right. Mr. Bob Dylan one that was like the, the Scorsese Bob Dylan one was quite a famous one then, and and it feels like this is probably like a genre which is getting a bit popular. So there is, you can probably research this without having been in a band. You could watch those, yeah, those like true. late seventies docs, the Zeppelin docs, Bob Dylan, etc., and yeah. start to see what the tropes are. I guess. Uh, for yeah. these guys. And just watching any group of people who take themselves too seriously is hmm. always hilarious. Yeah. And you're punching up as well, which is the great thing about it, because they are successful and they do, you know, have these kind of careers that have gone somewhere and will go somewhere in the future. So it's very safe comedy. It's not a fa- like I, I'm sort of astounded at like how well it's it still feels. It's not there's nothing too problematic in it. Even like the smelling the glove thing, it's like, well, they have a feminist being like, no, this is awful. You shouldn't be doing this. Mm. Um, but then also it's kind of depressing because the industry hasn't changed either Yeah, <laughs> in so many ways. I think 
this is probably the most famous sort of mockumentary, mm. which was a phrase that, that did exist before this film, I discovered, but Rob Reiner used it in all of the promotional stuff for the film. So mockumentary, mockumentary, even on the back of the box, right. so it says mockumentary. So there were some early mockumentary examples, most notably BBC Panorama in 1957 did an April Fool's joke about a Swiss spaghetti harvest. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember highly that. recommend uh, checking out if you've not it. seen it. <laughs> like a very straight delivery of how Swiss people are suffering due to a poor spaghetti harvest. Because it's the 50s and BBC, it's a very proper a sort Sounds of voiceover. Incredible. Yeah, there's all <laughs> this footage it? of like spaghetti hanging from trees. Yeah, <laughs> like cooked spaghetti, though, yeah. if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. <laughs> but I think before this film, there aren't that many big screen examples of it. But after this, we see things like Borat and Bruno and Sasha Ancon. In terms of film, this kind of changed comedy. Mm, <laughs> I think so. And I think as well, it also kind of has been this shadow hanging over any depictions of bands now forever like one of my favorite music documentaries is the one about the national have you seen that I have. yeah and and that and i think that even they now have to like find a way to reframe the sort of the story of of the documentary about a band because if you were just to show a band like this i think it would invariably have like so many spinal tap connotations just naturally because of how like brilliant spinal and realistic spinal tap is mm. when you there haven't really been that many that, that many more music documentaries like this because it's just it's impossible because every band i think is terrified of coming across like spinal tap do, do it with the harmony parts well, since, since my, my baby, baby the same key though, I think. Well, since my, my baby, baby left, left me, if I'm going, since my baby left me, me. No, you can't hit that note. Mm. Since my, mm. since my baby left me, well, I, well, found, I found a new, a new place to dwell. That's all right. Stone. Well, well, really. think. Well, it sounds raga. You don't want to go raga. No, not with this. I don't. So when we were watching it. Uh, the other night, I, like, I said, like I said earlier, I'd really not been able to grasp that it was under 90 minutes. And as we were watching it, there was loads of stuff that I remembered from having seen it before that wasn't in there. And I, I worked out that the version of it that I'd seen before was the four-hour bootleg work print that apparently has made the rounds at some point. And I'd watched that in good faith, thinking it was the actual film <laughs> that someone must have put it on or something. I don't remember when or where it was. So I couldn't believe when we submitted for the festival that it was under 90 minutes because the version that I'd seen before wasn't. So that was very confusing for me for a while. Well, while they we filmed like it. hundreds of hours. Yeah, like yeah. Hours which is why it's so full and mm. and replete with goodness. Yeah. yeah. For the film, does is there anything that sort of drags for you or is it like quite a full 82 minutes and it just flies by? Oh, yeah. Perfect I think, pacing. I think the second half is a bit slower. I was just struck by how... It is just this wonderful period piece, like to see New York at that time, to see the music industry that that those parties that they keep going to the label parties, the hotel rooms, like the the gear coming into the venue, the backstage, like it's it's you can kind of see like the almost famousness of it, but it was also real, and it's just. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it from that perspective as well. Like when they're sitting in that kind of, I, it looks like it's an English country garden mm. and Nigel's like wearing his kilt and they're, Marty is reading them the, the reviews <laughs> of their last albums. Like, <laughs> But the detail of that as well, like the album covers, the fact they're on like 
purple velvet. It's just the attention to detail is just fantastic. I think that scene that which they cut back to that must have been one long day of shooting and they just yeah. sort of pepper it throughout. Mm. It's so good because it's them all together with Marty oh. and it's like the four of them yeah. work so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a bit like where Nigel is saying he's like they've said something about <laughs> there's like a review of Shark Sandwich. And it's like uh, just two words, shit sandwich. And Nigel's like, that's not real. No, you've made that up. And it's you can tell that that is just them so deep in character. And Marty's probably just like throwing stuff at them. Can we just rest for a moment on calling your album Shark Sandwich? <laughs> What's the, the album cover as well is amazing. Yeah, it's like a sandwich with like shark's fins. On like, like a picnic an, table. Yeah, an yeah. illustrated sandwich. So is, yeah. it, is that like, oh, it's something that you think you want and then it like you get it and it bites you is that like is that i what think it's just about? like a really gnarly image like oh it's a shark sandwich All i this... mean obviously that came from an improvisation that rob reiner was doing and he just wanted the gag of shit sandwich yeah yeah because that's something so that you think he improvised shark sandwich I, and then, and then later on they mocked up the exactly, yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah i think a lot of the stuff is it is like that throughout the film like things that they say stick and then they have to keep working it into the yeah. movie like yeah. I think the title of the the album that they can't get released I think that was improvised so then they, the rest of the film focuses around an improvised line so yeah. the smell the glove uh, smell the glove yeah. <laughs> and I think that might be why when it's it is revealed that they just have the black cover it's just black because they didn't know what the album would be called anyway yeah, so they can probably. improvise around what it might be right. called and they're always going to have a black album <laughs> which is none more blacker <laughs> yeah yeah it's like really black yeah. did that scene with Marty and the band talking did that sort of remind you of anything that you've had to do in the music industry of like oh, having yeah. a critic come and sort of talk to you about previous records and all that sort of stuff I mean definitely I, I think now though it's funny I we haven't done the band for a couple of years and we've been working on a, a new album but now I'm like oh I would love to talk to do some interviews and do some press but in general I mean in journalists are lovely and I've never had a bad experience with it with a journalist but you definitely just get like the same questions over and over again and that thing as well of like people reading a negative review to you and then you having to comment on it I've never had that but I have had people like send me reviews and things like that. And you're just like, I don't want to read oh, this. Yeah. They're like, oh, I saw this. I didn't agree with it. It's like my mum, I remember one of our albums, like our first album was like streaming on The Guardian on the day it came out. And my mum called me and was like, they're writing such horrible things about you in the comments. And it's really <laughs> upsetting me. And I was like, mum, I love you, but I really don't want to go and read what Guardian commenters and she was like I'm gonna I'm gonna make an account and reply and I was like please don't do that it's like do you remember Tom O'Dell's dad I don't know if you know that this is a public thing Tom O'Dell's dad when he got a really bad review in the NME like his dad called the NME and and I completely understand that and they reported it as a news story oh but it's like no oh no but you do like you you kind of get so when you're working a lot and you're busy in it in that industry and especially like with touring and stuff you do go mad and you do get a bit sort of hepped up on your own kind of believe the hype you do yeah because you're going on stage and if your tour is going well and there's people there watching you you kind of start to think yeah i'm I'm somebody important which is when you start shouting at people about easter eggs because you're (laughs) also exhausted and really like it's you're always freezing it's always like very uncomfortable but you have this like hour of like I'm I'm somebody that people care about. And then, yeah, and you do kind of go a bit crazy. And then, yeah, when you're in those situations where you're doing interviews, that's when I think people say, like, 
bonkers stuff. I can see how it happens. The, the sort of Marty de Bergi approach is probably like a like he's he's going for like a very like typical interview of the time, isn't he? Like mm. that long form sort of thing where he's going to go through someone's whole career. And I guess he's quite keen to sort of bring up things from their past, like their previous iterations of the band as well. Oh, I love <laughs> oh, all yeah. that detail. I mean, I assume that that stuff is all pretty heavily based on status quo who uh, obviously in the 60s started off as like a hippy-dippy band with, uh, they had a song called Pictures of Matchstick Men, which is this really like kind of proggy, flower power hippie song. And then obviously by the late 70s, they're doing, you know, all their like, oh, on, what's their big, uh, rock, and all, rock and All Around the World, is that them? Yeah. Uh, all over the world. Rocking all over the world, yeah. Rocking all over the world. I just, yeah, I love, uh, my, probably my single favourite moment in the whole film is when they remember the first song they wrote in together. The diner. In the oh, diner. Yeah. They just start kind of like singing gently. Oh, my other favourite bit in the film is when they're harmonising at Elvis Presley's oh, grave. That, Jeremy oh. does that to me all the time. You do, what do you, you do that to me? I'll be singing <gasps> something and then you'll like purposefully join in wrong on purpose to No, I, to do, I, I do it. They're not doing it to like annoy each other. They are genuinely trying to get the harmony. Like Nigel is trying to do the harmony. But Jeremy, if I just sing something around the house or in the car, he'll just come and try and do the harmony. And, and then he'll be like, no, no, you sing the, you sing this part. And so now whenever he tries to harmonize with me, I deliberately like sing off key or like try and throw him and it drives him bonkers it's so annoying but it's so real again and but i loved as well that like thing of seeing a band change because also so many bands have several reincarnations incarnations rather and where they're trying to kind of find success in a different audience and they do not want to talk about who they were before and they're like no 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 i just want that to not exist like mm-hmm. it ruins it now and it's always so fun when you realize like oh, hang on wait you were in an emo band in like 2006 and this is you with an amazing asymmetrical haircut and now you're pretending that you're like this kind of folky like the best one is probably kings of leon kings of leon from like folky indie long hair very kind of deep south to like that awful video where they're like hanging out with African children and it's really, really problematic. And it's kind of them trying to be like, now a stadium. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, guys. Or the other one I was thinking was uh, David Bowie, who before Glam, yes. was, you know, sung uh, The Laughing Gnome. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> if, if anyone out there listening to this podcast hasn't heard that song, I urge you to. But he embraced it, and I didn't. Feel, I never felt like Bowie was embarrassed about. No, that. well, he obviously made a virtue of his yeah. of his changes, but I think he was a bit embarrassed about the Laughing Gnome. That sounds like it could be a Final Tap song. Yeah, <laughs> does, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you have a favourite song in this film, or a favourite sort of musical performance? Because when they when they're on stage, it's shot like a concert. Yeah, uh, really, yeah. Uh, which is why I think seeing their past TV appearances is quite fun because it's a locked off camera with them all on different platforms looking straight at the camera and when they're playing on stage there's like shots of their crotch and yeah. close-ups on their guitars oh, and God, the smoke so and all my favorite musical well apart from the one i already mentioned all the way home that one probably the guitar the extended guitar solo Oh my God, Nigel Solo! Another thing Jeremy does around the house. <laughs> I do occasionally pick up an instrument and follow Elizabeth around, relentlessly soloing at her. She particularly hates it when I do that with uh, the flute. You can't play. You can't play the I flute. Mean, I mean, I can play. I can't no. play it well. Oh my God. But you bought I... a violin as well. Yeah. And the worst one is the banjo. The banjo is in the attic now and it is never coming down. But yeah, when he when he gets the violin out and he's rubbing the violin against the guitar and then he stops to, to ever so slightly <laughs> tune the violin oh heaven 
absolute heaven. And the faces. I just think, like, was it working on my sex farm? Yeah. <laughs> just think that's, like, one of the best lyrics ever. I also love the, in the Stonehenge song, I don't love the Stonehenge song, but I love that breakdown where it's like they all start soloing. Oh, the sort of Celtic bit. Yeah. That, that's, I, I assume, is a. Yeah. I think that's a reference to the end of uh, Tubular Bells, which is this long prog instrumental from the mid 70s that unexpectedly ends with like a Celtic jig. Mm. And it's, it's very joyous. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. I was just thinking, so we're we're going to do this amazing film festival, a very broad range of movies, and lots of people who've chosen their films are sort of embellishing their screenings and they're, they're bringing extra things in or they're, they're sort of doing stunts or whatever. How What would be your ideal This Is Final Tap screening if you, you could do literally anything around this film? I'm trying to think if there was a way that you could have it almost be like the screening, the trying to organise. So basically what I would do, I've come up with it. I would make a documentary that's a mockumentary about you trying to organise your film festival <laughs> and have like you be this insane character who's very real because I'm sure the same things exist in the film festival world and and just have you trying to like make it like this is the most important film festival in the world and I have to get all the great films here and have like, you know, Louise could come in and she can be a nightmare and she can be like interfering with the programming and thinking like, no, 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 I really think people are going to want to take a nap here and things like that. So that's how I would do it. And then I would sh- then have the reveal that actually this is, um, well, maybe not even a reveal. And then you would show that maybe just as like a short. It would just be like a little short before the that's screening. Cu- that's cute. Oh, it's Oh, it's cute. How yeah. patronising. Well, you've kind of diminished your idea from being like this grand documentary to like just a little short before the screenings. Okay, I'm just like, I can't submit two films. Well, why not? I think you found the loophole here. Yeah. Every time you ever submit a film to a festival, you also submit the documentary making of, <laughs> or the mockumentary making of the film yeah. alongside it, and then you see which one does better. Yeah, okay. That's the secret, I think. Okay. I think it would it would it would add to it. It would make it a very unique screening. Yeah. Well, especially if you'd had all these like we could do it as promotion for this for the festival of like oh, there's this new festival that's been set up and the guy running it is kind of crazy. Like the things that he's requesting, we could have all these like press stories of you demanding that the Oscars like change their date because it's gonna like and you having this huge kind of swell of public support because you're outspoken about a subject, but then actually it turns out you know you've done something. Like, I don't know. That, that I'd need to work up the ideas. It's just a, it's, I'll do a treatment. If you could invite any guest along to the screening, who would it be? The Christopher the, guest. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mr. Any guest. guest called Christopher. Yeah, the band, I think, and ask them to do a little show beforehand would be. Mm. Did you afterwards. know that they sued? They had yeah, like a huge court case. Madness. Very stressful. <sighs> Very stressful. Yeah, we'd have to work out if we're allowed to, to screen the film. The band are currently, or the, not the band, but the uh, people involved yeah. are suing the distributor. And it's Is the UK distributor all? specifically mm. who have released the Up to Eleven edition. And that is still ongoing. Destination so, uh, Festival? Maybe we don't do it in the UK. 
Ooh, just a, just a hello. Screen it an offshore festival. It sounds like the fire festival. I'm, I'm very worried about this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, that's the angle. That's okay, it. That's two it. competing documentaries. Elizabeth's <laughs> is going to be the exploitation tie-in. My one's going to be the real deal. But unfortunately, your yours one's going to get all the press. This is going to be about me trying to like make trying to make press. this fake, yeah. fake mockumentary when yeah. actually there's real. And I'm the nightmare. Yeah. yeah. And Sam's just like, I don't want to do this, Elizabeth. Like, yeah. stop putting Elizabeth- me in these weird situations. <laughs> just like forcing you to make all these awful comments. And I'm just like, I've taken over your Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> she would do that. I would. She's a nightmare. 100%. Well, this sounds like it's going to be a, a highlight of the festival. <laughs> or... <laughs> or a lowlight. <laughs> so this film has got an amazing runtime, 82 minutes long. Do you think this film should or could be longer I would like more shots of just Nigel in his kilt. <laughs> so, should it be long? Should we like, like eight more minutes of it to take it up to ninety, or would it go over the ninety mark of I kilt think, shots? I think as many kilt. I was like weirdly. I was like, oh god, Nigel's really attractive. Like for the first time, I was like, God, I'm attracted to Nigel. This is then. Then I was like, There's something wrong with me. There's something dark and black in my soul. I think I would find it's Nigel the exposure attractive. to me doing guitar solos. <laughs> I think it has is. warped you, and y- it's, um, it's normalized. Yeah, it's awful behavior. Well, as I say, I, I did accidentally watch the four-hour version, thinking it was the proper film at some point. And actually, the only thing I remember from that that I really th- think was brilliant, and I think that it should have been in the in the finished version, was there's a bit where after Nigel leaves, they get in this other rock guitarist to take his place. But then when they do the show with him, it just completely steals the show. He's like dancing all around whilst do- doing all these incredible moves while while playing and he, when he's singing backing vocals like his voice is so amazing and he so he just completely steals all the focus away from David St. Hubbard is that his name? Or yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so they end up you know kicking him out as well and going on as a three piece and going on to Jazz Odyssey and, and all that and that's a, that's a really great scene so I think and it's probably only three or four minutes so I think it'd still be eligible for the festival even if we got them to add that sequence in maybe a bit more Harry Shearer as well because I never feel like you get enough of him I just, I would love him to just like talk about his clothes because his clothes in it are oh, so incredible. There's a bit where he's wearing like a full length camel coloured puffer jacket, black jeans and white cowboy boots and a baseball cap. And then the like football shirt with the leather suede jacket. Shrewsbury yes. Town football oh, shirt. So good. <laughs> well, there we have it. This is Final Tap is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. It sounds like this is going to be one hell of a screening slash film event. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> which Sam. Which I'm, I'm been dragged into, but I can't wait for it. It's going to be great. Uh, so we'll see you at the festival. And thank you very much for talking on this podcast. If listeners would like to find out more about what you guys are up to, where should they go? Twitter.com slash romcommovie. Yeah. I, I have a, a my film, a which documentary about romantic comedies. It is going to have a UK premiere, but I can't say where yet because it hasn't been announced. But we might also do a live score, which would be really fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be available around the world very soon. I'm Sankles on Twitter and Jeremy is JWOJWO. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like, favourite, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Love a rating. Give us a rating. Love a rating. Maybe a little review. It really helps as we're a uh, new podcast, uh, independent podcast uh, in, in iTunes land. And iTunes seems to uh, to sort of respond well to people interacting with the show, rating and subscribing. So hopefully see you there. You can also contact us on Twitter and Instagram at 90 Min Film Fest. 
The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. The show is edited by Luke Smith and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. Thank you.